Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Abraham Lincoln, we remember him, of course, for many things, but helping to lead this nation through some of its darkest days and preserve the Union, and also, we remember, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation. Not the father of freedom, but some would see him as the great emancipator. There's another characteristic of Lincoln, I think, that stood him in good stead all of his life. He was a bit of a nonconformist. He was always going against the flow. That got him into trouble sometime, but it gave him the fortitude and the vision to do what was right by his country. He came by that honestly, his nonconformity and his emphasis on freedom, because a little more than 200 years before the Emancipation Proclamation, one of his ancestors, who had come from Suffolk, England, by the name of Obadiah Holmes, was something of a rebel in his young years, married, came to America to seek his fortune, and God captured his heart. And he went to church in Plymouth Colony in Rehoboth, got into trouble there because he was a bit of a dissenter and he was expelled, and he settled in Newport, Rhode Island, where he met John Clark and John Randall at Newport Baptist Church, and he became a Baptist. And in 1651 in Lynn, Massachusetts, which unfortunately for him and for Crandall and for Clark was in Massachusetts Bay, they went there to minister to an elderly gentleman that was a part of their church who could not come to the congregation. And they were ministering to him in a small group and they were preaching. There was one problem. They were not licensed to preach in Massachusetts Bay. They were arrested in 1651 tried, convicted, and fined. It's interesting. Uh, Crandall was fined five pounds. Clark was fined 20 pounds. And Obadiah Holmes, the layman, he wasn't a minister at that time, was fined 30 pounds. That doesn't sound like much today. 30 pounds today is somewhere around $50. But back in that day, it would buy you five cows or four horses. It was a pretty significant amount of money. It was a year and a half's wages for a skilled tradesman. Well, people stepped forward from Newport, Rhode Island, to pay the fines. And Clark was released, and so was Crandall. Holmes refused on principle. And because of that, he was transported to Boston, to the Market Square there at the Whipping Post, and he was whipped with a cat of three tails, three prongs, but severely beaten, 30 strokes, I guess one for each pound, to the point that for weeks after that, Holmes could not sleep on his stomach or his back. He had to sleep, get what little rest he could on his elbows and knees. Later, it is said by those that saw the scars on his back that they were surprised that he had ever survived the beating. And John Clark then wrote about this incident in his Ill News from New England later in the 1650s. Later, Holmes became the pastor of that church, along with Clark, Newport Baptist Church, the second Baptist church in Rhode Island. And 
the rest is history. Well, what's significant about that story? Well, number one, it speaks to something about Baptist heritage. Baptists have always resisted any kind of formal state requirement to do ministry. We do not believe that the state controls the church and the state does not control those who are in ministry and it's not the state's responsibility to license or ordain them and give them permission to preach. But there's another message in it. It's a little more subliminal and that is also Baptist strong emphasis on soul freedom and as we talked about last week, the priesthood of not just all believers, but the priesthood of every believer. And that suggests this, that the ministry that we do is not confined only to those who stand behind the pulpit and hold forth the Word of God in what we call preaching. We are called by God, we're beckoned by God to come and walk with Him, and we've defined that as worship. And I hope that you have seen over the weeks that what we've done is we've basically gone through the liturgy that we celebrate each week and looked at the different elements and components. And last week we talked about this idea that we are all his priests from 1 Peter 2. We serve God as part of our worship as his priests and we help him to build a spiritual house and we all offer spiritual sacrifices to him here and now and as we go forth. Now, part of my spiritual sacrifice every week, just part of it is to stand here and to share with you what I understand the Word of God to be saying. Our worship is guided by the Word of God. It's driven by the Spirit. And it focuses on preparing us to walk with Him as we go and worship in everyday life. So as I stand and preach, we come to that part in our liturgy about preaching. What do we do? An act of worship is preaching the gospel. And you participate in that as you then listen and as you interact with the Word of God and it does something in your lives. I would suggest that we all are responsible for proclaiming His good news wherever we go. So when we leave here, perhaps there's something that you have heard, something that has touched your soul, something that has inspired you, something that has encouraged you, maybe provoked you in one way or another to take with you into that dark world out there, and you proclaim the good news based on it. I would suggest that preaching goes beyond this pulpit. Preaching also goes beyond what we would call formal proclamation, that is, the act of preaching. Now, I know that there are some that would say, no, preaching is special, and that is consigned to the responsibility only of those that are called and have been identified vocationally as preachers, ministers of the gospel who have been licensed and or ordained. I get it. There is something special, I think, about God calling out people to do certain ministerial tasks as a vocation, a calling. But we all have the calling of God upon us. And that calling of God, he beckons you then to preach the gospel. And that's what I want to talk about today. The apostles bore evidence to these truths that preaching goes beyond the pulpit and preaching goes beyond the formal proclamation of the word from the pulpit. And Paul really indirectly addresses this in the passage that I preached from the very first sermon here at Gambrel Street Baptist Church. The subject then was the power of God. And I'm going to touch on that today. 
But today it is about preaching beyond. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. Would you stand with me for the reading of his word? And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. What is the power of God? We'll come to that at the end of our message today. Let's have our seats. You know, Paul, of course, had gone to Corinth somewhere in the early 50s. We don't know exactly when, 50, 51, 52. But it's one of the few incidents in the New Testament that we clearly, in in the Acts and the Epistles, that we can pinpoint within about a year or two of exactly when it occurred. It was after he had been expelled from Philippi and then Thessalonica and then Berea, and he had visited Athens at the Areopagus. And he stayed there for 18 months, where he ministered first with Priscilla and Aquila, and then later Silas and Timothy, who had remained behind in Berea, then joined him there. And the reason that we can date it so precisely is because Gallio, we know, was the proconsul of Achaia, which was part of Greece at that time. In fact, Gallio, which is referred to in the book of uh, Acts, while he was there in Acts 18, was Lucius Aeneas Novatus. Gallio, in fact, was a golden orator and a politician, and he was the brother of Seneca the philosopher, Seneca the younger, and the son of the Roman patrician Seneca the elder, well known in his day. Paul wrote this letter on his third missionary journey sometime about maybe two or three years later, about 53, 54, 5 or so. And he was in Ephesus. And it was a second letter as far as we know. It may have been a third or fourth, but we know it was probably at least the second letter because he's responding to a letter that has come to him from Corinth asking questions based on a letter that he had sent earlier where he had addressed immorality in the Corinthian church. So in this letter, he answers many questions that have been addressed to him from the Corinthians, but he deals with two main problems in the letter. First of all, division in the church, discord, division, and then secondly, continued immorality, and then those other issues about which they had asked questions. In chapter one, leading up to this, he's done basically three things. He has rebuked the church for its factionalism and for its division, for following personality cults. And then he has exhorted them, secondly, to stay focused, to stay focused on proclaiming what we have sung about and what we have read about from Galatians, focusing on the cross of Jesus Christ, though the cross may seem foolish. And that leads to his third point in chapter 3, where he declares, he proclaims that God's wisdom is wiser than men. In fact, his foolishness is wiser than men. And God's weakness is stronger than men. God's ways are wiser and stronger than men's wisdom and power. In this passage this morning, the angle I want to come from touches upon three points. First of all, I think the gospel compels all of us, each of us, to go beyond preaching. All of us to preach beyond. And I'll talk about what that means in a moment. 
Secondly, as we do that, that can be a rather intimidating and fearful thing when you do not feel that you have been called, licensed, and ordained and trained at seminary to go out and not only preach, but to go beyond preaching. And so I would suggest to you that a second point is that we then all, myself included, need to rely on God and not on our own devices, not on our own selves, not just on our own resources. And then Paul, also in this passage, reminds us that above all, then, we need to stay focused as we do this on Christ. To stay focused on Christ crucified, that is, to stay focused on Christ and His cross. First of all, the gospel compels us to preach beyond, proclaiming the testimony of God, he says in verse number one. I think there there are three beyonds that I might take away from what he is saying here. Number one, we preach beyond church. We proclaim the gospel as we go. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew, the 10th chapter, when he sends them at that time to go to the Jews only, he says, as you go, preach. That's what we're to do as we go, not just from this pulpit. It's beyond preachers. It's not just the preacher. But it's every Christ follower has a responsibility to responsibility in a broad sense to preach. And then it's also beyond preaching itself. There's something more involved in this sharing the gospel that goes beyond preaching. Beyond the church. This is how the early church grew. It grew beyond the institutions of the temple and the synagogues. Where did the church start? It started in a house, didn't it? We don't know exactly which house it was. It was probably the upper room. Peter was preaching outside at Solomon's porch, outside the temple. He healed the lame man outside the gate, beautiful. The apostles in Jerusalem, yes, they preached and they taught in the temple, the temple grounds, but they also did so from house to house. Diaspora Christians in Acts the 8th chapter, when they spread after the persecution, it says they spread abroad, but it also says that then they went everywhere evangelizing. That means into the streets and the byways and the highways and not just behind a pulpit. Philip preached in the city of Samaria, where apparently there was not a synagogue, and he shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot. Peter healed Aeneas and Lydda and Tabitha and Joppa in their homes. Peter converted Cornelius in his home. So the preaching of the gospel extends beyond church. Pauline missions bear witness to this. On numerous occasions, Paul was not in a synagogue when he shared the gospel. Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of Cyprus, he went to his court and he shared the gospel with him and he was converted. He evangelized in Pisidian Antioch after the Jews would not respond to the message and he went to the Gentiles. Where did he do that? Probably in the marketplace. In Lystra and Derby, there's no evidence that there were synagogues there. There may have been, but there's no evidence. And yet he went to the Gentiles there, probably in the marketplace as he then applied his trade. He converted Lydia by the river. He converted the jailer in the jail. He evangelized among the Stoics and the Epicureans at the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens. And most of his ministry to these people in Corinth for this 18 months that he was there was not in the synagogue. He started in the synagogue, but he then moved later to the house of Titius Justus from which he ministered. So this proclaiming the gospel goes beyond the church clearly, and that's how the early church grew. It was beyond formal proclamation too. 
There are nine words that I can identify in the New Testament, probably more, but I can identify nine that are interpreted preaching. And some of them are as banal as as speaking, and it's put in the context of speaking the gospel. But there are two family groups of words that address this issue of preaching. One of them has to do with heralding, and it's the word keruso. It's also the word that we have that identifies the preaching of the gospel, the kerygma. It's based on the idea of being a herald. It's to proclaim and to announce openly. It's used 63 times in the New Testament in one form or another, and it's evenly distributed in the Gospels and Acts and the Epistles, and it really is pretty much the formal thing that I'm doing right now. It's to preach the gospel, even though you may not have been, but they may not have been behind a pulpit. And it's used in this passage in verse number four when he said, my message and preaching, actually it's conveying of the kerygma, the preaching, you see, of the message were not in persuasive words. But there's another family of words, three of them related together, that had to do with delivering the message, euangelizo. And if you put a V in place of the U, you know what it is. It's evangelizo from which we get the word evangelize. In other words, to gospelize, to share the message by evangelizing. And it's used more often in the New Testament than the word keruso. In fact, in Acts and the Epistles, it is used predominantly. Most of the usages of this are found where the church is growing in Acts and where Paul and the other writers of the Epistles are using it. And this word identifies an activity that is done not from the pulpit. It's usually done through teaching, corporate activity, participation together in worship, personal and practical ministry. And it's performed both by ministers and by those that are not, quote, vocationally called, the rest of the priesthood. And it's found here in this passage in verse number one, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. You see, Paul in this letter about 12 times refers to preaching. And eight of those have to do with this activity, evangelizing more so than preaching. In chapter 1, verse 17, he says that he did not come, he was not called to baptize. As important as that is, he was not called to baptize, he was called to euangelizoize, that is, to evangelize. In this passage, it's used in verse number 1 about the testimony of God. In a few moments, I am going to quote him from 1 Corinthians 11th chapter. And at the end of that, it says, as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we do what? We proclaim, and the, the word is used there. We proclaim, we preach, that is, the death of Jesus Christ until he comes again. So you see, preaching goes beyond the formal proclamation from the pulpit. It goes beyond the preacher. What is the role of the preacher in worship? You've heard Clyde say this many times. You've heard me say it. We are responsible. The team that is on staff is responsible to do what? To prompt. To prompt you. You are the actors, and so am I. And you know Kierkegaard's analogy. You know, you're not the audience. God's the audience. And we are performing before God right now. And what I'm doing is I am prompting you to think about the Word of God and to interact with it and to worship Him as you do. And what's your responsibility? The priesthood, it's to act. It's to perform before God. And that is also my responsibility. Every member, as we said last week, is part of this royal priesthood. Every person is a living stone in the spiritual house of God. Every person that is a Christ follower is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are all called 
in that passage we looked at last week. As part of the priesthood, all of us are called as a priesthood, as a holy nation. All of us, each one of us is called to do what? To proclaim. Remember that word? Verse number nine. To proclaim the excellencies of him who called out us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have a responsibility to proclaim. Every member has spiritual gifts. Every, men, every member has the ministry of reconciliation given to us. Every member is an ambassador for Christ. Today, Josh Garvin baptized his sons. That was a proclamation of the gospel. Who was proclaiming the gospel? The words were coming out of his mouth. But his three sons were proclaiming the gospel, giving evidence, giving witness that they had accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, that they had renounced evil, that they were following him and they were being buried through baptism unto death in Christ, and they were raised to newness of life. The Lord's Supper, we proclaim the death of Christ. This evening, Elias is going to be preaching. Elias is not an ordained minister. He's not licensed. Elias is going to be preaching from Ephesians, the sixth chapter, interestingly enough, about the relationship between servants and masters. You see, it goes beyond preachers. It goes beyond the church, and it goes beyond preaching per se. There are three gospel commissions in the New Testament, and we've addressed this before. The, most, the, the best known, of course, is Matthew 28. As you go into the world, do what? Make disciples. But there are three of them. Matthew 28, the imperative is to make disciples. Mark, the 16th chapter, the imperative is to preach, to proclaim the good news to all creation. And the word caruso is used there. To preach, that is part of our commission. And a third is found in Acts 1. That's Luke's version of the Great Commission. And it, he says, you're to wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed from on high, until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you are to be uh, the martyron or the martyroi. You're to be the martyrs. You're to be witnesses to the uttermost parts. There are three commissions. You see, it's not all only about preaching. And Paul did all three of these in this passage. He brings them all together. Look at it in verse 2, uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, he does what? He proclaims. And then later in verse 4, he preaches the message. So it fulfills that commission that is given in Mark's gospel. And he did it about what? The testimony of God, the martyrion of God, the testimony of God. He was being a witness. He fulfills the commission and acts. And he also discipled. Now, this isn't so obvious, but it's there. He discipled by doing what? By modeling Christ. You see, that's what masters do. That's what the Lord did. That's what rabbis do. They don't just teach. They model. They model what they believe. And then the disciples follow, and they take on that model, and they appropriate it, and they become like the master. And what Paul could have done, he could have come with superiority of speech. He could have come as the great rabbi. He could come as the great missionary and evangelist. But no, he didn't do that. He didn't want them looking at him and modeling themselves after him. He said, I was determined when I came to you to know nothing, to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And in so doing, what he did is he modeled Christ and he discipled those who followed him. And the same thing applies to us. Each one of us, if we're part of the priesthood of believers, you are a minister of the gospel in that respect. You are called, and so am I, to preach the gospel to euangelizo, to evangelize. 
Yes, we have the responsibility of evangelism, but it's much broader than only going through the plan of salvation with somebody. It includes that. To declare the message of the good news of God, you are responsible to be a, a witness, to give your personal testimony in one way or another to other people, and to disciple. That's a scary thing. People then will follow you and model their lives after you if you reflect Christ. So you see, we go beyond preaching in all of these ways. That's a, that's a fearful thing. It, it can be an intimidating thing. And if you ever feel like that, you know, you may say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not good at, at witnessing. I'm not good at evangelizing. Well, whether we're good at it or not, folks, God still calls us to do it. And if we're prayerful and worship as we walk with him, he will put it upon your heart sooner or later when the intersection of somebody else's life to share the good news of Jesus Christ with that person. Don't be fearful. Do not be intimidated. For we know that Jesus says that he will never leave us. He is always here with us. He assures us then by giving us the Holy Spirit and the presence of God is with us. He assists us and he promises that if we're faithful, when that time comes, he will put the words in our mouth and he will draw from the wellspring of the scripture that we have studied and learned and we have followed in following him. And he will bring forth the right words at the right time. We should not be fearful because he prepares the way. Just as we heard the choir sing this morning about God leads us along in every circumstances, he is there. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the good shepherd. He guides us then in his righteous paths. Most of our encounters folks, are with people that we already know, with familiar relationships. We should not be intimidated. We can rely on God to see us through, for His grace is sufficient for you, as He told Paul, and we know, as He told the Philippians, we can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens us. In this, we need to be careful that we do not rely on our own strengths. Paul says that he didn't. The principle is this, we should not trust and human devices. We looked at that in our opening passage of Scripture, Psalm 146. You remember what we said near the beginning of that psalm? In verse number 3 it says, Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Paul modeled this in his life. We need to stick with a simple message of the gospel in its unvarnished simplicity and its mysterious complexity. Remembering this, that it is his gospel, and it has come through the revelation of Jesus Christ and not through our inventive words and our ingenious thoughts. You see, Paul says this, I did not come in three ways. I did not come with eloquence, that is, superiority of speech, excellency of speech. The sophists believe in, in Paul's day and in Jesus' day that if you use just the right rhetorical skill, you could persuade people. Roman politicians, some of them were golden orators like Gallio to whom we have already referred. Pagan priests believed that if they walked in the temple and they used just exactly the right incantation, they could cause the gods to come and to give them what they wanted. Paul's saying here, it's not excellency of speech that does that. It's not fine oratory. I knew that. It wasn't wisdom. Human wisdom fails. Human reason fails, either because of the presuppositions that we have or because of the logic we use. It is faulty. Human knowledge is limited. It is fallible. We do not know God's ways. God is more than rational. He's super rational. He's beyond our comprehension and reason. Paul says this in the first chapter. God's foolishness is what? Wiser 
than men. And Paul knew that. Neither modern science nor, nor postmodern philosophy can either prove or disprove God exists. And that's a good thing. Because if you ever put God in a test tube, or if you contain him in the philosopher's stone, you do not have the God of all creation, who is Lord of the universe. You see, human wisdom, science, and philosophy, as good as they are, ultimately fail in explaining the ways of God. He did not come with persuasive words. The word there means words that were believable, words that are plausible, words that are convincing because we know that they're reasonable. The problem with this is God has done impossible things. God the Father raised His Son from death, and that had never happened before. God offers eternal life, and that is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. You see, what He has done is quite incredible. It is quite implausible. You know, the King James Version uses an interesting phrase here. Instead of using the word uh, convincing or persuasive words, it says enticing words. And I think that's very insightful. What it suggests to me, folks, is there's a worldly seduction out there. And the seduction is this. Only believe the things that are reasonable. Only settle for things in moderation. Only settle for things that you can really get your mind around. The problem is God goes beyond that. Instead, what did he do? Paul got out of the way, and he let God take control. You see, he came in weakness, not relying on his own strength. He understood that the weakness of God was stronger than men. And he said this in his next letter to the Corinthians, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, you see, about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. He came in fear and trembling. Not because he feared the Corinthians. I don't think Paul feared any man. No, it wasn't that kind of fear. You see, it was a fear of God, the reverence of God, and that he was serving the almighty, holy God, and he came before him in fear and trembling. The only time that Paul uses this, three other occasions, in his epistles are found in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, and Ephesians. And every instance where he speaks about fear and trembling, he connects it with obedience. Tonight, Elias is going to speak about this. That's one of the instances. Slaves, servants, be obedient to your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart as to Christ. What Paul is saying in this passage is he came in fear and trembling before God because he was being obedient to his command to share the gospel. He came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He got out of the way and he let the Spirit act. You see, this actually is the preaching of the Word. That is the phrase in verse 4. He was committed to preaching the Word. That's the Logos. He was committed to preaching not only the words that came from God, but he was preaching the Logos, Jesus Christ, who is the living Word. And friends, that is far more than human words. He was, pre he was preaching divine words. This morning when we read the psalm. When I read from 1 Corinthians 2, we are literally speaking and preaching the words, the divine words of God. They are not merely human words. And what they do is they demonstrate with irrefutable proof the action of the Holy Spirit, that these words originated with the Holy Spirit, that they have inspired us to speak them, 
and they're delivered in the power of the Spirit. That's what Paul wanted to happen. Why? Why? Because he wanted their faith to rest on the power of God. We can be sure of this if we're faithful to God and we're in His Word. He will clothe you as His messengers just as He did the apostles from on high. He will fill you with His Holy Spirit, and when the time comes and you need a fit word to say to somebody about the gospel, He will give it to you. And Paul was resolved that this would all result then in what? Their faith being grounded in the power of God. Not because he was sufficient in himself, but that his adequacy was in God. Well, how do we apply this second point? We need to be reassured. Sometimes we feel weak. Sometimes we are fearful and trembling. That is a good thing. What it suggests to me is we're not trying to do it in our own power. You know, not every time I get up here and preach do I fear and tremble. But most of the time, before I get up here and as I pray, there is a bit of fear and trembling in me. And I think any preacher that is honest will say that. Because we are dealing with Almighty God and His Word and eternal matters. Woe be unto us when preachers have no fear and trembling when they proclaim the Word of God. Same thing for you as you share with friends. You know, Paul's testimony about it was this. Therefore, I am well content with weakness for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, help me, congregation. For when I am weak, I am what? I am strong. Last point. We need to stay focused on Christ and His cross. There are two goals I think we need to keep in mind whenever you go out, whenever I go out, and we proclaim the gospel. And one is we need to know the crucified Christ. We need to know the crucified Christ, as Paul did. And we need to stay focused on the cross as the center of our message. Jesus said eternal life when he was praying to the Father in John 17. He said eternal life is this, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. This is about knowing Christ. Not knowing about Christ. This is about knowing who he is and modeling him. And you've heard me give this example many times before. You've heard it from other people too. The Wesleys had been ministering as Anglican ministers in the Church of England for several years before they were converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. You've heard me talk about Elias Keach, the son of Benjamin Keach. It was actually a century before. He'd heard his dad preach time and time and time again in London, and he was invited to preach at Cold Spring Baptist Church in 1687 outside Philadelphia. And in the middle of his sermon, when he was preaching from the Psalms, in the middle of his proclaiming the Word of God, he was converted. There is a difference between knowing about Christ and preaching about Christ and knowing Christ and preaching Christ himself crucified. And we need to take that to heart. We sang about it today. We need to stay focused on the cross. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I humbly take my stand. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way for the burning of the noontime heat and the burden of the day. Upon that cross of Jesus, my eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders, I confess, the wonders of his glorious love and my unworthiness. We need to stay focused on the Christ, 
on the crucified Christ and His cross. We've given evidence of that today as we sang. As we saw believers' baptism performed in our very, before our very eyes. Paul says we have no reason to boast in anything but that. He boasted only in the cross of Jesus Christ. And the last point, we need to keep the cross at the center of our message. Paul's goal was to ground their faith in the power of God. Now, I asked this question nine years ago when I preached my first sermon here. And you know it not because I preached it, but you know it because you know 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, I hope. What is the power of God? What is the power of God? It is not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the who that is the power of God. For in that first chapter, he says, we preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The who that is the power of God is Jesus Christ. What is the power of God? The what we say is the preaching of the cross. But in fact, that's not quite accurate. 1 Corinthians 1.18 puts it this way. For the word, the logos, which means preaching, but it also means the logos who is on the cross. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to those who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. So let me ask you this question. What does that mean? What does it mean when we go forward to tell people that the cross of Jesus Christ, the crucified Savior, is the power of God? Even Plato knew what this meant. Even the pagan philosopher who lived three centuries before Christ knew something about what this meant. In his Republic, he says this, if you want to know who a good man is, not one who just wants to seem to be good, but wants to be good in reality, this is what we will do. We must indeed not allow him to seem good, Plato wrote. For if he does, he will have all the rewards, all of the honors paid to the man who has a reputation for goodness and justice. He'll prosper. No, we must strip him of everything but his justice. We must give him the worst of all reputations. Does that sound like Isaiah? We esteem him smitten and stricken and despised. We then give him a reputation for wrongdoing, even though he has done nothing wrong. And so we can test to see what his justice does, to see if he weakens in the face of unpopularity and all that goes along with it. And then what we do, the just man, as we have pictured him, will be scourged, tortured, imprisoned. His eyes will be put out. And after enduring every humiliation, he will be crucified. Wow. You see, even a pagan philosopher understood the power of the crucifixion. It vindicated the goodness of Christ through the resurrection. You see, God works through humility, not pride. Jesus came as a weak babe in human flesh. He poured himself out and gave himself in humiliation on the cross in obedience. Without death, there is no harvest. Jesus said to the Greeks that gathered around them, and unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it falls to the ground and dies, then it will bear much fruit. For there to be the harvest, there must be the death. For there to be a resurrection, there had to be a crucifixion. Without death, there is no future life. You see, God uses weakness to overcome death. 
This is the mystery of the gospel. He uses victory over death to bring eternal life. And Paul tells the Corinthians later in this letter, for to be sure, Christ was crucified in weakness. Yet he lives by God's power. Well, what was God's power? The power of the cross. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. You know, in the first chapter leading up to this passage, he makes this observation about the cross of Christ. It must stay at the center of our proclamation of the gospel. You know, some people, a lot of preaching today isn't about Christ. That's one problem, okay? A lot of preaching today from the pulpit and out there in the world isn't biblically based. That's another problem. But there's another problem. Some people who preach Christ and preach from the Bible only preach the nice things. They only preach the prosperity. They only preach the good things. They preach a bloodless gospel which is empty and without power. For we must remember that our Lord Jesus Christ shed not only his blood, but gave his life to redeem us from sin and death. That it took God's only begotten son to die on that cross to purchase us from sin and death. And Paul makes this observation. You see, the reason he said, I didn't come to baptize, but to preach the gospel, he then continues to say, not with the wisdom of words, unless lest the cross of Jesus Christ be made of none effect. When we go out there, there will come a point when you share the gospel with somebody where they have to face the hard, unvarnished fact that Christ died for them and they can't do it themselves. And if we back down at that point and if we water it down, and we only want to talk about all the nice and wonderful and beautiful things that we do see in Scripture, we have missed the point. They can be redeemed only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I would summarize it this way. Worship is responding to God's invitation to walk with Him. We've said that numerous times. How do we do this? Well, we answer Jesus' call. And what did He say to His disciples? Follow me. Where? Wherever I go. So we worship God by following Jesus wherever he goes. And along the way, he gives those three commissions. Preach the gospel, disciple followers, and witness with your life, your crucified life upon the cross. We do these things by taking up our cross and showing people Christ. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I count but lost and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. As we stand together, think upon these words as we sing them. See from his head as we stand together. See from his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands what? My soul, my life, my all.
Let's stand together as we respond to God's invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.